You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. New data from the CDC shows that in the U.S., only 23% of pregnant women have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. As the Delta variant causes cases to surge, health officials across the country are encouraging expectant mothers to get vaccinated immediately. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Dr. Men-Jean Lee, Chief of Maternal Fetal Medicine at the University Health Partners of Hawaii. Dr. Lee says that right now, more mothers-to-be are expecting treatment for COVID than at any other point in the pandemic. These are all young, healthy people that were not vaccinated. And, and that's what alarms us the most. The pregnant women that have multiple comorbidities, such as obesity or diabetes, we've encouraged them from the start to get those vaccines early on during the pandemic, as soon as the vaccines are available. But the ones coming in are just regular, healthy pregnant women walking around. Do you happen to have any data that specifically looks at what rates of vaccination there are in Hawaii among pregnant individuals? That data is almost impossible to get. The Hawaii State Department of Health and all the vaccination centers are not tracking pregnancy as one of their criteria. However, we can extrapolate that I saw about 30 patients in my office this morning and only two were vaccinated. So we're estimating in Hawaii, probably less than 10% of pregnant women have been vaccinated. During the initial launch of the COVID vaccines, there was a lot of confusion as far as whether or not pregnant women should be taking the vaccine. And so due to that confusion and a lot of misinformation, women have been left behind in the vaccination process. And so we're right now a little bit behind the eight ball in trying to get all the women vaccinated so that they are protected and their unborn babies are being protected. So that is extremely concerning right now because last year during the initial surge, we were seeing pregnant women coming to the hospital with COVID infection, maybe one every few days. And during this particular surge, we're seeing about 10 in a week. So this is a lot more than we saw a year ago. What are the complications that these individuals face? The women are developing respiratory distress. So pneumonia, as well as just difficulty breathing to the point where they need to be put on life support, extra oxygen, even ventilators or being intubated with a breathing tube to help them breathe, to support them and give them enough oxygen to get through the infection. It also requires supporting them with enough oxygen to oxygenate the unborn fetus. We also have seen a case where the infection and the inflammation has affected the maternal heart to the point where the heartbeat is starting to stop. And the patient has required additional care to support her heartbeat in order to keep the baby alive. And in these cases where the mother is requiring cardiopulmonary resuscitation or support, we have to unfortunately deliver the babies early or take them out early in order to keep the mother alive. Dr. Lee, if you don't mind, we talk about being on a ventilator as kind of an indicator that someone has very serious complications. But as someone in the general public, I don't really know what it means to be intubated. Can you describe what it means to physically require a ventilator in order to breathe? So prior to needing ventilation, we have the patients on special nasal cannulas, so the oxygen tubes to try to give them oxygen. And we monitor what's called oxygen saturation using a little clip on your finger called pulse oximetry. And so if we see that your oxygen levels are dropping down where you're not able to send enough oxygen to your fingertips, we then increase the oxygen levels being given to the patient. Now, it gets to a certain point where we can't get enough oxygen in the patient and they 
are gasping for breath or feeling like they can't breathe. And that's a really terrible feeling, like you're drowning and unable to breathe. And in order to support them and give enough oxygen to both mom and baby, they would require what we call ventilatory support, which means putting a tube down her windpipe to breathe for her. And this would also require sedation or sometimes paralysis so that we can let the machine breathe for her and hope that we can get enough oxygen into her lungs so that it can go into her bloodstream and provide oxygen to her brain, to her vital organs such as heart and also the uterus and the baby. And on that note as well, we are seeing <coughs> hospitals across the state say that they are at capacity in terms of how many beds that they have, how many ventilators they have to treat patients. Correct. Do we currently have the resources to treat pregnant individuals who are coming in with COVID-19? Yes, we currently have enough ventilator support and our team of maternal fetal medicine doctors are working really closely with the intensive care COVID infection units at the three main hospitals that take care of adult patients in order to coordinate where the patients go at the right place and the right time with the right equipment to help take care of the patient and her needs. Right now, Kaiser Hospital is their own network of hospitals and also Tripler has their own network. So that leaves us Straub, Kapiolani and Queens Medical Center to coordinate triaging our pregnant women across those three hospitals. What would you say is the carrying capacity of that system right now? I think we're, we're stretched. Queens has had to create multiple and open up new COVID ICUs so that they can accommodate the surge in adult patients needing ventilatory support. So we're trying to mobilize our pregnancy specialists to go to all the hospitals that happen to have pregnant women so that we can help to oversee their care. Mm -hmm. You say that the majority of pregnant women are not vaccinated in the state, and we are seeing increasing numbers of people who are coming in seeking treatment for COVID-19. However, that's only one aspect of why someone might seek inpatient care while pregnant. Since your resources are being stretched in order to treat this disease in pregnant individuals, how is that impacting care for other people who might come in for different types of procedures or other complications that they can experience throughout the three trimesters of pregnancy? Okay, that's a great question. So all of the doctors that are working uh, to take care of adult pregnant patients, we are dividing up into teams and shifts so that we have teams of doctors that are going to be taking care of the regular women that are coming in to do labor and to have their prenatal visits. And then we're also creating a subspecialty team of doctors that are trained in taking care of pregnant women with COVID infections. One of our big calls for help right now is to encourage as many pregnant women as possible to get their vaccines so that they can protect themselves and their babies from getting infected and needing to come into the hospital for extra care. And this also helps the other women who are experiencing a normal pregnancy to still have access to hospital services and have their babies delivered in a safe environment. In regards specifically to COVID-19, what are some of the common questions you get from pregnant individuals who have concerns? The good information that we want to share with pregnant women that might be listening out there is that the vaccines have been now used in over 150,000 women across the country, and nobody's turned into a zombie. No babies have been turned into zombies. And there are no microchips being injected. The vaccine itself, especially the mRNA vaccine, is a very, very 
simple type of vaccine because it's made out of something called the mRNA. So this is the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. And as UH scientists, I actually run a placenta research laboratory at UH Manoa. And we have been doing a lot of research on mRNA in the placenta. And so what we do know biologically and scientifically that mRNAs are really, really weak. They get chewed up by the placenta. The placenta is preventing any of the mRNA from getting to the baby. So you don't have to worry that the baby is actually getting the vaccine directly because the placenta is protecting the baby. However, what's really great about the vaccine is that if the mother is making antibodies against the COVID virus, the antibodies cross the placenta and that can protect the baby. And the antibodies are being secreted into mom's breast milk. And so, as you know, we always tell our patients breastfeeding is best because those antibodies for any kind of infection will go over to help protect the baby. And so because babies and fetuses are too small to get the vaccine, if the mom gets vaccinated and is making the COVID-19 antibodies, we have two ways of protecting the baby now. Another comment that I get from patients about taking the vaccine is like, well, I don't want anything new. Well, some of these other medications that we've had to create to treat COVID infection, like the Regeneron monoclonal antibodies or some of the antiviral medications like remdesivir, these are all relatively new medications. And so if you're gonna take one of those, you might as well take the vaccine so that you don't have to take another two kinds of new medicines. And then recently there was another large study that showed the results of the registry of pregnant women that have received the vaccine. And they showed that there was no increase in miscarriages, no increase in birth defects, no increase in premature labor, and no increase in stillbirth in women who have taken the vaccines compared to women prior to COVID infection or COVID pandemic days that were pregnant. So all of this is very, very reassuring to all the doctors that take care of pregnant women, so much so that between the CDC and now the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine are all strongly encouraging COVID-19 vaccination in pregnancy. What I've been telling all our patients that are just coming in today to get their regular you know, OB ultrasounds is that if you're not going to do it for yourself, please do it for your baby. That was a conversation between HPR Savannah Harriman-Pote and Dr. Men Jean Lee, Chief of Maternal Fetal Medicine at University Health Partners of Hawaii. It is now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us today. Good morning, Anita. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you have a story online about uh, some technical problems that the Department of Health has been having. We've had an undercount of COVID cases. Yes, so um, yesterday, Hawaii reported 472 new coronavirus cases, but we got a press release from the Department of Health saying that that was an undercount, that an unknown number of cases uh, were excluded from both from, from the from the count uh, because due to technical problems on Monday and Tuesday, um, the electronic laboratory reporting system was interrupted for approximately 20 hours. Um, so we're expecting that some of those cases that were missed uh, yesterday might be in today's count or tomorrow's count. And so what's the latest count for today? 
Um, so the latest count for today is 549. So it, it is an increase today, um, and, and that may include some of the, the delayed cases. So I guess, uh, you know, this issue of this, the technical glitch, it's happened before. Yes. So this is the second time in two weeks that the state daily, state's daily count has been an undercount. Um, during the last week of July, lab reporting delays uh, culminated in 622 new infections on July 30th. And at the time, you know, that was the highest number of single day cases of the pandemic, um, you know, in Hawaii. And um, that was a concern, but state officials were like, well, that does include some delayed cases. And then, as you know, after that, on August 5th, we had 655 new cases. So, um, you know, we still are experiencing these these increases and these high high rates of relatively high rates of cases. Um, but but it is a little bit difficult to tell sort of on a day to day basis where we're at because of these delays. And the Department of Health did have some technical issues before when it came to the contact tracing process and the reporting of those cases, right? Yeah, and this is a statewide issue. I mean, and not just the Department of Health. So many different um, state agencies have struggled with you know, old aging technology, the most most famously Department of Labor, as you know, with the unemployment system just being completely out of date and that really, um, you know, hurting a lot of people at a difficult time last year and continuing to hurt people. Um, but, you know, with contact tracing, uh, we reported a year ago how contact tracers were relying on two fax machines to um, receive thousands and thousands of COVID case reports, and sometimes those would break. They were definitely overtaxed. And so it's really one thing that the pandemic has really shown into thrown into sharp relief um, is just the aging infrastructure and the way in which um, you know, the state has, you know, and continues to rely on these sort of aging um, systems. Yeah, I mean, we need good data in order to, uh, you know, make good decisions. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is distressing. Uh, but, uh, you know, you've been doing a, a number of stories around COVID and, and uh, with these numbers going up, there certainly is a need for more contact tracing. Yeah, and actually, I will just make one more point. You know, mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what happened at the electronic laboratory uh, reporting system. So, you know, I don't know if it's if that falls into the category of aging infrastructure, but it, it definitely falls into the broader category of technical problems, you know, right. <laughs> that the state has been struggling with. And, and yes, you know, we've been reporting a lot on so many different challenges, like la- uh, lack of isolation in quarantine rooms, um, challenges with overburdened contact tracers, um, you know, just, just so many challenges that the state has been facing with uh, COVID. And and the biggest challenge, I think, is just trying to get that vaccination rate up so that they can prevent, um, you know, this more uh, hospitals from being, you know, too full. Currently, you know, hospitals are, are really um, needing to have even more staff coming from the mainland because their, their capacity is being stretched so far. Yes. And, you know, on the reporting side, I remember there was a discrepancy between uh, you know, how many people got uh, vaccinated here in Hawaii, I think between our numbers and I think it was the CDC numbers. And there was some head scratching over that as well. Yeah. Well, some good news is that the state's going to start announcing coronavirus cases at 9 a.m. instead of noon. So everyone can, you know, learn earlier. But one piece of sad news is that today uh, the state reported one new death, a man in his 30s. So Mm. definitely urging everybody to get vaccinated. Right. And, you know, as uh, the kids are in school now, I think they've been back for a week or so. Uh, you know, we certainly are watching the the numbers reported within the Department of Education just to see where the clusters might be and if they can, uh, um, you know, move quickly to kind of manage those cases. Yeah, my heart really goes out to parents right now. It must be a very anxiety-filled time to to be a parent right now as your children aren't eligible for vaccinations. But sort of, um, you know, everyone I talk to is really having a difficult time trying to figure out like how to keep them safe. Yeah, I know it is uh, uh, unsettling at this point when we when we watch those numbers. But thank you so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's reality check. To read her stories online, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits and their initiatives, including vaccinations to help protect residents from COVID-19, such as the Filipino Community Center, NareetHawaii.com. Coming Saturday, August 14th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with Na Ukulele Ekolu, highlighting the versatility and range of the ukulele. Everything from the traditional Sweet and lovely to the contemporary. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by TS Restaurants. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Relaunching tour and talk story, docent-led museum tours and discussion exploring historical context and cultural relevance of selected artworks. Registration at honolulumuseum.org. Crowds come more crime. Tourists are being targeted once again now that the visitor count is on the rise. The Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii has been flooded with calls for help. We talked to Jessica Lani Rich, Executive Director of VASH here on Oahu, about the uptick. Oh my gosh, ever since tourism has opened up, you know, with the influx of visitors, also comes incidents. And what I mean by that, Catherine, is that we have visitors who really let their guard down when they come to Hawaii. They'll take their valuables to the beach, so we're seeing thefts on the beach, car break-ins. But where we're seeing the most crimes against our visitors are at many of the lookouts, like the Lanai Lookout, the Blowhole, Shark's Cove, Pali Lookout, because what visitors do is they'll leave their car door unlocked, purse on the front seat, go look at the scenery, and that is what we call a crime of opportunity. When a visitor leaves their car door unlocked and a criminal sees that purse in the front seat, all they have to do is open the door and take the purse. So we're seeing a number of car break-ins. Well, you know, my daughter was just over there at the blowhole not too long ago, and they were shocked because they said, you know, it was middle of the day, they heard glass breaking, and someone had just, you know, did a smash and grab. Yeah, and the smash and grabs, you took the words right out of my mouth, because that's exactly what I was going to say. In addition to the crimes of opportunity, the smash and grabs, you know, if they see that purse on the front seat, if they see that knapsack, if they see that bag with a camera hanging out of it, although a lot of our visitors do have cell phones, they're going to do the smash and grab and take it, and it's really, really sad. We're also seeing uh, people who go to the beach, whether it be on the Waianae Coast or on the North Shore, leave their car, all their valuables are in their car, and leave the car keys on the beach. They'll tuck it in their shoe if they're wearing a tennis shoe or tuck it under a towel, like the towel's going to be a safe, which it obviously isn't. Go in snorkeling, come out of the water. Their car is gone with everything in it. So you're seeing that just all over? Well, we're mostly seeing it at some of the spots like on the North Shore and on the Waianae Coast where people are leaving their car keys on the beach while they go swimming and come out. As a matter of fact, one of our most recent cases about three weeks ago involved a federal agent. He came here and he was with the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. He was getting ready to go to the airport a few hours later, came out on the beach all of his federal ID was taken, his government-issued computer was taken. He was left with literally nothing but, you know, swim shorts. And so police asked us if we could provide him with a shirt, which we did, ride back to a hotel, paid for hotel accommodations, clothes. We even bought him glasses because he couldn't see it. That was a sad case. And it was really embarrassing because this is not the message that we want to give out to our visitors. If you come here, something bad is going to happen. 
And, you know, we have seen lots of 911 calls for all kinds of rescues, you know, both residents and visitors. And unfortunately, people are drowning at some of the popular beaches, you know, they just aren't sure of the conditions and, and, and think it's safe to go out on the rocks when it's really not. You're absolutely right. And in addition to what you just said, Catherine, what we're seeing is people taking risks here that they never would even think about doing these sorts of of actions when they're back home. They will go into the high surf, even though they have no experience surfing. And that's where, sadly, we see our drownings happening. Since January 1 until the end of July 31st, we have handled over 425 cases and we've assisted about 1,160 visitors. So those are a lot of incidents that are happening, and we're glad that we're there to help, but we also want our visitors to sort of use common sense when they do come here. And what I mean by that, if you go to the beach, don't take all your valuables with you. Don't take $3,000 with you, which we've seen. Don't take all your jewelry with you. Just take what you need for the day, and don't leave your items unattended. Right. Or take your key with you when you swim. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to be safe. Yeah, the ABC stores, they have waterproof protection that you can take your room key with or also your money with you. We always advise, please don't take hundreds of dollars to the beach. The best thing to do is to keep your valuables in your hotel safe. Many of the hotels provide this as part of the room that you're uh, your hotel accommodation, and then if they take your little bag with 10 bucks in it, you know, it's not going to devastate your vacation. And the number of cases that uh, you've responded to since the numbers of tourists have bounced back, I mean, how does that compare to pre-pandemic times? Well, how it compares to pre-pandemic time is they're about the same okay. amount of numbers. However, what we have seen during the month of June, as you're, you were well aware of, Catherine, is that there is a stabbing on Waikiki Beach on June 1st, where a visitor from the Bay Area passed away, 19-year-old visitor, he was stabbed. And that was the most tragic case that we have handled this year. And in the case of Ilion de la Cerda, now he's the 19-year-old who was stabbed on June 1st, is that what we're seeing is people bringing weapons into Waikiki at night. And so you know, what we tell people, our visitors, if you're going to go out in Waikiki between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m., be aware of your surroundings. Look around. Is somebody following you? You know, and just be really conscious. And don't, you know, don't get yourself in an interaction or an argument with somebody. It's just not worth it. It could even possibly cause you danger or an assault. And in this particular case, sadly, even death. Yeah, so you don't know how the other person is going to react. So just so chill <laughs> if you can. Yeah. Yeah, not not worth getting in a scuffle with someone. Anything else that that you're seeing or you're hearing from your counterparts on the neighbor islands? From our counterparts on the neighbor islands, what we're seeing is they're first of all really glad that tourism has opened up. It has obviously brought the economy back and given many people who work in the tourism industry their jobs back. So we're all really happy about that, to see our local people getting their jobs back. But at the same time, you know, we also are glad that we're there. Uh, VASH, Visitor Law Society of Hawaii, we have chapters on Maui. On Maui, it's run by the Maui Visitors Bureau on the Big Island, and also on Kauai is by the Kauai Visitors Bureau. Uh, so we're here if any if visitors need our help, and, uh, and and what we do is we provide moral support, we su provide food if they need it, rides to the airport. We do not provide, however, Catherine. We get these calls all the time. Can you give me a free ticket, like to New York? No, we don't. We don't do that. And we even get calls from people on the mainland. Can you give us a free ticket to Hawaii? We don't do that either. What we mainly do is assist visitors who are victims of a crime or any other adversity, and we're there to help whenever they need it. You know, uh, I know our EMS personnel, uh, our lifeguards, uh, you know, they've been tapped with uh, so many rescues. And, uh, yeah, people just need to know, I guess, their limits, you know, what they're physically capable of, whether it's hiking up on the pulley somewhere or getting into areas in the water where maybe, maybe they're not strong swimmers. Absolutely. And we also handled a case 
where it said, do not go on this hiking trail. This hiking trail is closed. And in this one case, the visitors climbed over the fence and there was an accident, and this was several months ago. So we also ask our visitors, if it says don't go in the high surf, don't go in the high surf. If it says don't go on the hiking trail because it's closed, don't climb over the fence and go on the hiking trail. Right. Heed the warning. Yeah, heed the warning. Absolutely. That was Jessica Lani Rich, Executive Director of the Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii. Vash is always on the lookout for new volunteers. A new training session is planned for September. Look for links on our website later today. If you already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. Huge wildfires have been raging around the world this summer. The nearly 200 fires in Siberia are collectively larger than the ones burning in Greece, Turkey, Italy, Canada, and the United States combined. In the U.S., the Dixie Fire in California has already burned nearly 500,000 acres and is quickly becoming one of the largest in state history. On the Big Island, many residents are recovering from the impacts of the largest wildfire on record. The Hawaii County Fire Department says the Mana Road fire burned approximately 40,000 acres and claimed two houses. The department anticipates it'll be able to get an updated figure as soon as the weather is clear enough to do an aerial survey, and it is still putting out some hotspots. The homes that burn were located on Hawaiian homestead land in the Pu'ukapu area that lies on the outskirts of Waimea. The conversations Russell Subiano spoke with Micah Kamohoali'i, the cultural advisor for the Waimea Hawaiian Homestead Association, about the community response during the blaze and how recovery efforts are moving forward. They said two homes and a bunch of sheds, but we know as the Waimea Hawaiian Homesteaders Association, because we know all of our lessees that are out there, that there was actually four homes that was burnt down. And so I say four because Two of the homes, the county calls a shed, but they were the size of studios, and they had families living in them. So these families are all Hawaiian families. One of the main houses that burned, uh, there's a family of four in there, husband, wife, and two kids. And the other home, I believe, auntie, there's an auntie that lived there, and so her home had burned down. And then the one of the studios that burned was a young boy. Hawaiian family here, Hawaiian male, lost his place, and he just made it so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like it, we saw the pictures, he bought a new truck, everything, and as well, he lost his truck in the fire. Okay. He couldn't get it out in time, and so he burned his home and his truck. And the last home was a family of four as well. And it's my understanding that the fire reached the area of Pu'ukapu where, where the land is zoned for farms. Is that right? It's actually ranching land. Ranching. So Pu'ukapu has residential lots, it has agricultural lots, and pastoral lots. So the fire broke out in the pastoral lot, so in the back, right on the base of Mauna Kea. Were any of the livestock affected? Most of them was able to get all of their livestock out and move them to safe locations for a little while. Some of them didn't have enough time, and we heard, sadly, that some of them had lost their livestock some cattle, uh, a lot of their chickens. A lot of families had lost all their chickens. They couldn't get them out. I know it was the largest brush fire on record for the island, large enough that Hawaii County Fire Department needed help from the National Guard. Do you feel uh, personally or, or from the stories you've heard from your homesteaders, do you feel that the department did everything it could to prevent the loss of structures? That's a tough question. The fire was so massive and... The wind was such a huge factor that just 
really made it run through all the pastures. And, and in no time, thousands of acres were burned. I do have to give a shout-out to all of our community members that showed up to assist in helping put out whatever flames they could get to and haul water. So there were so many Waimea families that just came. I, I've seen at least close to 300 Hawaiians out there and just community members um, hauling water to put out fire wherever they could. You know, I think the fire was so massive that resources had to be diverted towards Waikoloa area and Waikiki. And it almost kind of felt like we were left to fight it on our own in the Pu'ukapu area. And so thank you to the community that really just kind of pulled together. They didn't think about it. Anybody who had a pickup truck ran to fill up waters, 100-gallon totes on the back of their truck, and made it out there to wherever they could sprinkle water, dump water, even hook up hoses to it if they could, and just, you know, assist in whatever they could do. A lot of the families that live here in Waimea work for construction companies, so they were able to run to their job sites to go and get their dozers and and just create fire breaks wherever they could, try to protect as much houses as they could. It was it was just I think it was so much happening at the same time. But the beautiful thing was that nobody they didn't think about it. They just did it and they went out there and they did whatever they possibly could do to help. Whether it was to help the families get out, to help some of the aunts and uncles pack up their their important documents and their important things to get out of their homes to evacuate or to literally just turn on the water holes and just keep watering whatever they could house, you know, even cutting the the grass right around the house so that it could be as short as possible, the less fuel for the fire. I was there the weekend of the fire and I I saw, I saw some flames. I saw a whole lot of smoke. It it really, Mm -hmm. the smoke really covered Waikoloa village all the way down to the water. You know, another factor was the dust. So when, when everything burned through and the wind was just like howling at maybe 40 miles per hour, but it started picking up the dust and just, it, it, it was a mix of smoke, ash, dust, everything. So people were getting pounded wherever they were standing. And so it, it made that smoke cloud look even more massive. You know, families did whatever they possibly could do to get water there. And people were filling up buckets, passing buckets, running buckets, dumping wherever they could. And then my father, one of our homesteaders is uh, the fire chief in Honolulu. And so he was home, and so he called my father, who is the president of the Waimea Hawaiian Homestead Association. And he said, what are we going to do? And so I told him, Dad, we, we need water there. One of the aunties called, and the fire is right at her doorstep, and they have no water. And so he filled up the two 500-gallon totes he had, him and um, uh, Uncle Lionel, who's the fire chief, they just kind of MacGyvered some sort of engine with, I, I don't know the whole thing, but I did see that there was PVC pipe, duct tape, glue, <laughs> all kind of attached to this sort of motor with hoses coming out of it. And they stuck them into the the um, water totes and cranked the, the engine, and it sounded like a generator. And on the other end, Uncle Lionel had attached his fire hose. And that thing started shooting out like a fire hose. And so... We all feel like we became junior firefighters. So dad's driving around the corner and we're just blasting whatever we can with, you know, with the hoses that are coming out of the back of his truck. I, I love it. I love hearing those kinds of stories. <laughs> you know, you have to, in, in, a, in this sort of state of emergency, you have to do whatever you, had, you could do. And, um, you know, people was out there with shovels, whacking the fire with boots, whatever they possibly could. Is the county still flying helicopters or there's still helicopters flying around to looking to put out hotspots? I think I saw one of them still flying around. The fire kind of ran up Mauka, up Mauna Kea. And so, and you can't drive there. So the helicopters are putting out those. I do have to say one, one remarkable thing was that when all of the resources seemed to have shift down to Waikoloa, we were like on fire still trying to defend whatever we could, our, our homes and, and put things out. And everybody kind of shifted towards Waikoloa. And then the helicopters all went that way as well. And, you know, we almost kind of felt like we were left alone to do it ourselves. There were civilian helicopters, like Paradise helicopters. That this uh, helicopter flew in, and they're filling up their the water with somebody's pool. That They had a swimming pool out there, and they're one of those pop-up swimming pools, filling and dumping and filling and dumping. And 
just the whole community effort, not just our Waimea community, but the whole island really came together. I mean, even with the donations that came down, people from Kau drove to Waimea to donate food, hot food, you know, cases of water, whatever they possibly could. People from Puna, from Panaeva, and Kaha, and all the other homesteads started driving to Waimea to just lend a helping hand wherever they could. So, so proud of our island community. Yeah, it makes me very, very proud to be from Big Island as well. Yeah. The, la- the last time we talked, you said that there was going to be a meeting Tuesday night with some community leaders there. Did that meeting happen? Yeah, so the meeting was um, Tuesday night, yes. We had the mayor there. We had also the fire chief, the chairman of Department of Hawaiian Homeland, Civil Defense, HPD. Yeah, those were the, and then of course, it was hosted by us, the Waimea Hawaiian Homestead Association. And so, you know, we, we had to swing into action because we weren't going to wait for somebody to give us a handout. You know, we needed to take action right away. And, and mainly because now that it's done, the fire's done, it leaves our, you know, a lot of these families, as the dozers was going to create all these fire breaks, they kind of ripped out all the water lines. If they didn't rip it out, the water lines had exploded because of the heat of the fire. And so a lot of the families, though their houses were saved, they had no access to water. In addition, they're all ranchers, so nobody can put their cattle back into their pasture because there's no feed left. And they would have to spend everything they have to try and feed 100 heads or 60 heads of cattle. And so our homestead association said we need to swing into action and help in any which way we can. So whether that it's GoFundMe's, whether that's writing grants, asking for donations, any which way that we could help repair some of the necessities so people can get back up to snuff and, and, and kind of continue on with what they're doing and pick themselves up. And so the meeting started with that, just assessing damages, and then it, it went over into um, all of these leaders explaining some of the things that happened, a lot of questions from our community as to what happened, why, why we didn't get emergency alerts on time or even get them. A lot of people didn't get them. By the time we found out that the fire was out of control, it was way too late. And then it was like such a rush. Everybody needs to evacuate now. When other people around the island had gotten emergency alerts before us, and we're like, we live here. What happened? So just kind of trying to get to the nitty-gritty and answer these questions. And, and I think the biggest thing was, how can we be better for the next time because this is not the first fire in Pu'ukapu and, and I'm sure it's not going to be the last but how can we be all on the same page the next time this happens? What kinds of things did the county talk about when it comes to helping those that were impacted by the fire? Is there anything that count, any programs or any money the county has or, or making available? Yeah, you know what kind of sucks is that you hear this from every official that you talk to. We don't have any money. <laughs> you, you always wonder where did all the money go so we heard it from the Department of Hawaiian Homeland that they don't have any money we heard it from the county they, they don't have any money it seems like nobody has any money and so and it's kind of hurtful in a way because you know this was this wasn't something that we started you know this fire was started elsewhere and it ran through our communities and, and we're already struggling you know it's a pandemic people aren't working and so how do you bring yourself back to life and bring yourself back to, you know, some sort of sanity when you just lost everything you kind of have. And these some families actually literally losing everything. I think that's mainly why we have to do it ourselves. Whether it is that we have to sell one million lao laos to get water lines back in, or if our GoFundMe helps us out by, you know, getting funds that way, we have to do what we have to do. But any help from any community anywhere and any individual will be greatly appreciated. That was Micah Kamohoali'i of the Waimea Hawaiian Homestead Association. He spoke with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information on how to help those impacted by the recent wildfire on Hawaii Island, you can head to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
We're halfway through 2021, and as we plan the rest of the year, we want to know what you think. When and how do you listen to HPR? What kinds of programs do you want more of? We recently sent invitations to our annual audience survey. Check your email inbox for the link or head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org survey. It's quick, it's easy, and it really helps us give you more of the radio you love. And thanks. You know, it was about a week ago that state lawmakers pushed back on the governor's appointment of Dan Gluck to the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Now a Native Hawaiian woman has been named in his place. HBR's Ku'uvehiri, she joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so the, the appointment uh, of Deputy Prosecutor for Honolulu, Sonia McCullen, to the Intermediate Court of Appeals has got a lot of attention um, coming off of the pretty contested uh, public hearing on the appointment of Daniel Gluck. It sort of renewed conversations around re- who's sitting uh, on these top benches. So this is the first uh, Native Hawaiian appointment to the ICA in the last 30 years. Um, and we haven't seen a, a Native Hawaiian on the Hawaii Supreme Court appointed uh, for about 20 years. So it's been a long time coming. And for advocates, you know, great, we've got one appointment, but perhaps uh, we need to create systemic change, right? So conversations around how to do that um, is is really what's, what's happening right now in the background of uh, McCullen, who still has to uh, go through the Senate confirmation process herself uh, to secure that, that appointment. We don't know how soon that's going to come, do we? We don't right now. It's been about a week. And so uh, what normally happens is uh, the legislators on the Senate Judiciary Committee are going through, and any legislator really who's interested in it is going through her case files, looking at her background, figuring out um, how she fits into this and whether they have any questions about whether or not she's the right person for for this appointment. And then the Hawaii State Bar Association will also... Um, have to vet her to figure out uh, if they're going to give her a thumbs up or a thumbs down. That's really one of uh, the sort of strongest voices, according to to Senate Judiciary Chair Carl Rhodes, uh, on what that, you know, whether or not they give the okay will be a big indication on whether or not the Senate Judiciary is going to move forward with it. Um, but McCullen, you know, um, of all the candidates on EGA's shortlist, McCullen, a, a UH Law School graduate, had by far the most appellate court experience, so actual experience before uh, the court that she is uh, sort of being nominated to sit on uh, after more than 11 years in the city prosecutor's office. She's a former Hawaiian studies teacher out of Waianae High School, and uh, she also stir- served as a staff attorney with the United Public Works, with United Public Workers, uh, one of the state's largest public worker unions and a law clerk for Hawaii Supreme Court Justice Paula Nakayama. So that's kind of her background. Governor Igis says McCullen has the legal skills, knowledge, and temperament to serve all of Hawaii on the appellate court. Um, but Maui County Councilwoman Kiani Rollins-Fernandez, we reached out to, uh, she joined the coalition of attorneys, uh, mostly Native Hawaiians, in opposing Gluck's nomination during the Senate confirmation hearing and she, she welcomes McCullen's appointment. Uh, here's Rollins Fernandez. He mea noi ku pono loa no o Mike Mikellen. A he mea hoi kona hookohu ia ana iluna kana vai mukaise a. So Rollins Fernandez is, uh, believes that McCullen is a good fit for the ICA seat. Uh, she believes it will make a difference in seeing to it that decisions on the high court are made justly and fairly. Uh, but she was reluctant to say one appointment uh, will create that systemic change. So she's anticipating uh, this issue will be something that lawmakers will be paying attention to in the near future, whether uh, through the form of resolutions at the county council level or perhaps uh, measures uh, being proposed at the state legislature. Now, we do know that the Native Hawaiian Legislative Caucus did uh, come out and voice concerns about uh, Gluck's nomination and the lack of representation on the high courts. <clears throat> and so um, perhaps we will see something coming out of the caucus once the legislative session does come around. Yeah, so the lawmakers, though, uh, in the Senate, will be vetting 
her uh, yes. and uh, making sure that, yeah, she's not uh, just a, a, a token name out there, uh, but someone right. who is well qualified, has a temperament and, uh, uh, you know, can bring something to the bench. Exactly. And uh, we will are likely to see uh, some some public comment in terms of uh, at the Senate Judiciary hearing regarding sort of that that gatekeeper idea of we don't want to just put someone on there because they're Native Hawaiian and a woman. We do want to make sure that the standards uh, of the bench are kept intact. So I think we will hear some of that in terms of public testimony uh, whenever the Senate Judiciary Committee decides to hold their confirmation hearing. Right. You do want to keep the bar high, though. Right, right. This is the gatekeeper of of all cases that go through the Hawaii Supreme Court, right? So we're making sure uh, that, and they've got a backlog uh, mm-hmm. mentioned in the public hearing. It's something like a thousand cases behind, so a lot of work. Uh, but what this would also do, I wanted to point out, is that there are already uh, three women on BICA and two men. So this would actually flip representation on the appellate court to four women and, and two men if, if uh, McCullen is confirmed. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR's Kuvehi Reishi. Check out her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. time. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will be here for an Aloha Friday show. And we hope to talk to the school superintendent next week. What are your concerns now that your children are back in school? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Give us some feedback. Or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.